Please keep your Bibles open before me in that portion of Scripture that we read together, Habakkuk chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you missed that earlier, please will you just pause the video, uh, read chapter 2 and chapter 3 as we come to God's Word this morning. Now over the last two weeks, we've looked at the first half of the book of Habakkuk, specifically chapter 1 verse 1 through to chapter 2 verse 4. And for those who were not here, or in case you've forgotten, I'd like to just briefly recap the ground that we've covered before moving on to finish the book of Habakkuk this morning. The title of the first sermon two weeks ago was The Sovereign God Confronted. And we saw that Habakkuk raised some real concerns with God about God's dealings with, with him, with his people of Judah. Concerns which we saw back then were very similar to the concerns that many of us face today, both individually and as a church. We looked at the fact that the book of Habakkuk was this very personal, intimate account between Habakkuk and God as he moved on this journey from, from doubt to faith, as he is confronted uh, with the sovereignty of God in response to his complaints that he brought to God. And so along this process, Habakkuk was starting to see his situation from God's heavenly perspective. He was starting to realize something of the sovereignty of God and something of their sinfulness as a nation, as the people of God who had rejected God. He was starting to see himself in the light of God's holiness and God's justice so that he could then properly understand and appreciate this future judgment which God had promised and the eternal salvation which awaited for those who trusted in God. And so although the general tone of, of Habakkuk's journey last time was, was a negative one of complaining and doubt, we see a very different attitude emerging from the prophet this morning. And this is one of confirmation, confirmation in who God is and particularly in God's sovereignty. God's response to Habakkuk's complaints in the previous two messages has helped him to now become confirmed in his faith in God. And so the title I've given to this morning's message is The Sovereign God Confirmed. Confirmed about who God is in justice, who God is in glory, and who God is in his salvation. So these are the three headings that we will be considering this section under today because we all need to be confirmed regularly in our faith as Christians and in our sovereign God. And so the first point I want us to consider today is the God of justice confirmed. And we pick up our study in Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 5. The rest of chapter 2 is God confirming to Habakkuk that he is the God of justice. You see, back in chapter 1, verse 5 to 11, God made it very clear to Habakkuk that they, as the people of God, the nation of Judah, were going to face imminent judgment at the hands of the Babylonians, this ruthless and wicked nation who would sweep across the face of the earth to conquer every nation in their path. We saw something of their greatness and, and their, their wickedness together in what God revealed last time. 
They were more powerful and, and more vicious than any nation that had ever gone before. But we also saw that God was using them in His sovereign plan and purposes to accomplish His purposes in Judah. Nevertheless, as we come now to chapter 2, we see that God reveals to Habakkuk a fuller and clearer picture of his justice. You see, Habakkuk had self-righteously pointed out to God that the Babylonians were a wicked nation back in chapter 1 verse 13. But God had to show his people that they were actually worse they had received so much grace, so much truth from the hand of God, and yet they had rejected him. But now God moves on to show Habakkuk that the nation of Babylon too will not escape his judgment for their wickedness. Even though God was going to use them for his purposes to bring punishment and judgment upon the people of Judah, Nevertheless, the Babylonians were fully accountable to God for their actions. And it is at this point that God now reveals his judgment against Babylon. Now verses 5 to, to 19 is a, is a terrible list of God's judgments against Babylon. And this section is, is known as the five woes. For we see how God responds to the attitudes and the actions of the Babylonians with these pronouncements of judgment. And this section of God's judgment against the Babylonians starts in chapter 2 verse 4. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, another translation says. This reminds us that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. While, while you and I can only see what, what other people put forward on the outside, the way people dress, the way they speak, the way they act, God is the one who looks into the deep recesses of our hearts, and here he identifies this great Ruthless, powerful nation of Babylon as proud and arrogant and without integrity. And so God's pronouncement on, of judgment against the pride and the arrogance of the Babylonians must cause us this morning to, to sit up and to take notice. What God has said to Habakkuk about the judgment of this wicked nation of Babylon still applies today. And so we can quite rightly look at these five pronouncements, these five woes against Babylon and take them as a very serious warning against those who continue to live with the same Babylonian attitude and arrogance against God today. Those who claim today that there is no God those who claim that they don't need God, those who defy God in the way that they live their lives in, in public or in secret, those who rely on their own goodness and self-righteousness and own efforts to, to make them acceptable to God, those who think that God's grace is a license for sin and lawlessness. The judgment of God is coming against those whose heart is puffed up and without integrity. 
So it is helpful this morning for us to look briefly at God's justice being revealed against the Babylonians in these verses and then to consider these five woes in the light of the world in which we are living in today. So, woe number one is God's judgment against greed in verses 6 to 8. And we don't need to look further than the corruption in our government, all that's going on in our state-owned enterprises, or in the boardrooms of big business today, to see the effect of greed in our society. Our economy is driven by greed, this desire for more than we need. And so people will trample on anyone who stands in the way of getting what they want. This was one of the root sins of the Babylonians. And not much has changed in 2,600 years. How many of our problems today cannot be traced back to us desiring more than we need? And a willingness to amass those things at all costs. God warns in verse 7, you will be called to give an account. And you who prayed on others, you will be devoured. The second woe we find in verses 9 to 11, and this is God's judgment against corruption and injustice. Now this woe is against those who seek to gain security, who seek to gain financial independence at the expense of others. The NIV says, woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain. People who use illegitimate and dishonest means for personal gain. God says, be sure your sins will find you out. You may think that you will get away with it. You may think that no one is looking, that you've covered your tracks. But in the end, even the bricks in the wall will cry out. The beams and the woodwork in your house witnessed your sin and you will be exposed, says God. The third judgment is the judgment against violence in verses 12 to 14. And this third woe is against those who seek power and fame by violence and intimidation. And again, we can just look at, at some of the world leaders and, and those who suppress people through violence. We can look at big company CEOs and managers who use all kinds of employee intimidation and bullying tactics to get results or to fake results. God says that everything they achieve will end up as nothing. For ultimately, His fame and His glory alone will cover the earth and everything done which does not promote God's glory will be consumed. The fourth judgment is the judgment against seduction. In verses 15 to 17. Now this next woe encompasses the whole range of, of the sins of addiction and seduction, which usually go together. Here we see people enticing their neighbors, fellow human beings, into drunkenness in order to expose their nakedness. In other words, an exploitation for sexual perversion. 
Here we see the desire for sexual perversion, which is so strong that people will treat other human beings like objects, ignoring in them the glory of the image of God, seeking their intoxication so that they can be exploited sexually. Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun. This woe against Babylon has developed into a multi-billion dollar industry of drug addiction, alcohol abuse, and sexual exploitation, which is celebrated as a pillar of our worldwide economy as it oozes out of every television series, every movie, social media, and the internet. God warns them in verse 16, a warning which is so timeless for our sexually addicted world today that all their filthy deeds of shame will be exposed and God will disgrace them in judgment. And then the fifth woe is judgment against idolatry in verses 18 and 19. And, and this is God's woe, God's judgment against the worship of false gods. Look at verse 18. What, I, what, what use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It is only a cast image, a teacher of lies. For the one who crafts it, shape, crafts its shape, trusts in it, and makes worthless idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to the wood, wake up or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be plated with gold and silver. It may look very pretty and elaborate and expensive on the outside, and yet there is no breath in it at all. The Babylonians had elevated idols of wood and stone to be their gods. Today, we continue to invent new idols as diverse as mankind itself. Pleasure. Comfort, money, power, houses, cars, careers, sport, relationships. God silenced all of these idol worshippers by exposing the emptiness of their idols. Showing that he alone is the living and true God. What an amazing list of contemporary evils that we see all around us in the world today. And even in our own hearts. What I love is the way that God looks past the, the external wickedness of the Babylonians. And he sifts through all the external facade of power and might. And he calls them to account for their root sins in their hearts. Pride, greed, injustice, violence, seduction and idolatry. And you will be hard-pressed as you look at that list to find any sin which does not fall into one of these categories. In fact, it's not hard to see how all ten of the Ten Commandments are broken in this list of five woes. So God's vision to Habakkuk is, is very clear and very practical for us today. God is saying that he will judge. He will judge the wicked for their actions and for their attitudes. The wicked will not escape. 
And you will not escape if you continue to live your life with this kind of Babylonian attitude. You may look like a Christian on the outside, but God's word is exposing our hearts today. And the question is, how do we measure up to this list of five woes? So we've seen firstly then that God is a God of justice. He will not be mocked. And until you recognize that truth, you will not see your desperate need for salvation. In the second place then, I want us to see this morning the God of holiness confirmed. As Christians today, I think one of the biggest weaknesses in the church is a proper view of God's holiness. We've sometimes become so familiar with God or with our perception of God that He no longer invokes a sense of, of fear and awe and reverence. The direct consequence of this low view of God's holiness is an increased tolerance of sin. And so we need to become confirmed with Habakkuk today in the holiness of God, lest we start to play games with sin, thinking that this previous list of woes does not apply to us. And so it's against the backdrop of this list of judgments against the, the wicked, which ends with the sin of idolatry, that God reveals his holiness to Habakkuk in chapter 2 verse 20. But the Lord, Yahweh, is in His holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in His presence. God is drawing a sharp contrast here between the dumb, mute, breathless idols of the Babylonians and the fact that He is the living God, Yahweh, the great I Am, the eternal King of kings of which we sang about earlier. And he demands silence from the earth in response to his holiness. God's holiness and his glory cannot be separated. We see this in chapter 2 verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the waters cover the sea. So look with me then at chapter 3 where we have Habakkuk's prayer or, or hymn of response to this holy God. This prayer is a, a finely crafted hymn of praise to this God of glory, this God of holiness whom he has come to understand in the previous verses. And so in verse 3 to 15 of chapter 3, Habakkuk composes this hymn of worship this hymn of worship which reminds him of who God is by remembering God's dealings with his people in the past. Habakkuk worships God at this time of, of imminent judgment by recounting back to God the, the glories of his past acts of power and dominion which God exercised throughout the history of his people Israel. And so just... There's a brief little applicatory note here on the side, which is a lesson here of how we should learn to pray by bringing to mind all that God has done in the past and to see the, the present situation that we are facing in the light of God's faithfulness to his people in the past. 
So let's just scan over these verses to get an idea of what Habakkuk calls to mind. Starting in verse 3, Habakkuk goes back to the, the great deliverance of God's people from Egypt. Teman and Mount Paran were regions in the south of Israel next to the Sinai region where God revealed himself to Moses. This is the region through which the nation would have traveled as they were led out of captivity in Egypt by God. Then in verse 4, he speaks of God's glory, which was bright, like rays of lightning. And here Habakkuk is probably thinking back to that bright light of the glory of the Lord, which, which shone between the Israelites and the Egyptians as they crossed through the Red Sea, that, that pillar of fire that protected the people from behind. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 14, verse 19 and 20. Then in verse 5, we see a remembrance of God's delivery or deliverance of his people from Egypt and the plagues which God sent. Habakkuk acknowledges God's dominion, God's power and control over plagues and pestilence. In verse 6 and 7, we have the accounts of what was most likely the effects of God's delivering the land of Canaan into the hand of the Israelites. The nations trembled as Israel approached the borders of Canaan. And you can read about that in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. Then in verses 8 to 11, we see Habakkuk's worship of God for having sovereign power over the cosmos. He mentions the accounts of God parting the Red Sea, parting the, the Jordan River in verse 8, and then again in verse 15. Look at how wonderfully he presents this to us. Chapter 3, verse 8. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariots? Verse 15. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. Habakkuk here ascribes to God these incredible miracles of parting the Jordan River, parting the Red Sea, as if God simply walked through the water with his horses. The parting of these great bodies of water for God is like a, a little child stepping through a puddle. In verse 11, we see God's command for the sun and the moon to stand still so that Joshua could gain the victory over the Amorites as we read in, in Joshua chapter 10 verse 12. So in these verses 3 to 15, we, we have Habakkuk's hymn of worship to God as he confirms his knowledge of this God of glory. The amazing thing that we must not lose sight of here is what Habakkuk is doing to contrast what he's saying about God in chapter 3 with what we see of the Babylonian nations back in chapter 1. Habakkuk is drawing a direct comparison between this mighty, vicious nation called the Babylonians and the holy God of glory whom he worships. Just look at this briefly. Back in chapter 1, the Babylonians, their horses are swift like leopards. Of God, Habakkuk says, his horses stomp through the oceans as if they were a puddle. The Babylonians, their, uh, sorry, their cavalry proceeds like vultures. God's arrows are lightning bolts. 
The Babylonians gather up nations like fishermen in a dragnet. God causes the waters of the sea to rise up like a tsunami. The Babylonians move along like the wind. God causes the sun and the moon to stop in its tracks. The Babylonians scoff and mock at kings and princes and rulers of the lands. God causes the nations to tremble for he shakes the earth with his might. And they act out of pride for themselves where God acts for the salvation of his people. This is the holy God whom Habakkuk now confirms. And so we need to see God for who He really is today. This hymn of praise for the glory of God is something which we need to digest and and internalize as Christians. His words, Habakkuk's words, need to become our words. Despite his circumstances of imminent judgment, Habakkuk was looking beyond his circumstances to see God. A God who was bigger and mightier and more glorious than anything else in all the world. His God was the sovereign God over all things. The God who is in control. So do you have this view, Habakkuk's view of God this morning? Is your God bigger than all your circumstances? Are His plans and His purposes more perfect than your own? Is he more glorious to you than anything else this world has to offer? In the final place then we reach really the pinnacle of Habakkuk's journey as he sees and acknowledges the God of salvation confirmed. Let's look back over two verses which we skipped over in this previous point. Verse 2 and verse 13 of chapter uh, chapter 3. Habakkuk starts this hymn of worship to God in chapter 3, verse 2, where he says, Lord, I've heard the reports about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk was responding to to the vision which he had received of God's justice. Both God's justice on Judah as a nation as well as on the wicked nation of Babylon. As terrifying as God's speech had been, it reminded Habakkuk of the greatness of his God who in the past had rescued his people as a nation time and time again. And so we have reached here a major turning point in Habakkuk's journey with God because he finally sees God and his dealings with them in the light of God's overall plan of salvation. Habakkuk realizes that Israel was not special because of anything they had done, but only because God was their savior. Verse 3 to 15 is no longer about the problems in Judah or the imminent judgment at the hand of the Babylonians. It's all about God and it's all about God's dealings with his special people. And so he says in verse 2, O Lord, renew, revive your work in these days. This is quite profound because 
suddenly the lights have come on for Habakkuk. He started off at the beginning of the book somewhat self-righteous in his complaint to God for, for, for his silence, for his lack of action. It seemed to, to Habakkuk in the people of Judah. But now, look at what he says now. Now his prayer is for God to renew and to revive his work amongst his people. He realizes that they have rejected God. They've provoked God to anger. And so he pleads with God in verse 3. In wrath, remember mercy. Sorry, verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. As Habakkuk realizes the need for God to act. For God to act as judge. For God to act in justice. But he also recognizes the need for God to revive. And so he pleads with God to remember mercy. Remember grace in his dealings with his people. Don't we all need this attitude today? As we consider our own weakness, our own failings, our own blatant sinfulness against the grace of God in our lives every day? Isn't it time to perhaps drop our self-centered and self-righteous attitude and to come to God and to plead that He will remember mercy? Then in verse 13, we see that Habakkuk ascribes to God all the glory for being their God of salvation. Verse 13, you come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. All of these verses in which Habakkuk has been praising God for his might and, and power over the world nations have been headed to verse 13, where he acknowledges that all of God's actions have been done for the salvation of his people. And so in verse 13, we have a reference to the salvation which God brought about through King David, probably with reference to David's victory over Goliath. But here we also have a wonderful shadow, a wonderful hint that points us forward to the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will ultimately save his people from their sins, the one who would ultimately crush the head of Satan under his feet. And so chapter 3 verse 2 and chapter 3 verse 16 then form a frame around this hymn of worship which we've been considering. Because now in verse 16 Habakkuk comes back to the same point that he was making in verse 2. Verse 16 he says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. The pronouncement of God's judgment against his people was something which made Habakkuk fear and tremble. He says he was so terrified that decay had set into his bones. His whole being trembled when he realized that there was no security or rest to be found in the day of God's judgment. But if that was where the prayer ended, 
there would be no place for real hope and consolation for us as God's people today, but rather just this fearful expectation of God's righteous wrath coming against us. But the hymn of praise and worship, recalling God's faithfulness to His people in the past, was based on the genuine faith that God will fulfill His promises made in chapter 2 verse 4, that the righteous will be saved by their faith. This genuine faith is what finally triumphs in the life of Habakkuk. He has come to an understanding of the God of salvation, and this understanding is what gives him hope despite the imminent judgment which they faced. And so we come to verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. This is one of the most moving passages in all of Scripture. When we see a man who has truly come to understand what faith in God is all about. Habakkuk is facing one of the most terrifying events in all of history. And in the face of it, he expresses joy and celebration and hope in the God of his salvation. He is 100% confirmed in the God of his salvation. This God will give him strength, will lift him above the trials with the agility of a deer. And so as we conclude this morning, and I know it's been a very brief overview uh, of this book in three sessions, but I wanted to just close with three points of application from the life of Habakkuk, which I hope will encourage you this morning as you go into this week ahead. Number one, be confirmed in God's promises. God has given us many promises in His Word, and God is faithful in keeping every single one of them. Habakkuk's hymn of worship here in chapter 3 is a reminder that God is always faithful in keeping His promises. He will judge those who reject Him, and He will save those who trust in His anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, for salvation. If we trust in Christ for salvation, we become the recipients of the promises of God given to Jesus. Jesus himself has given us many promises in his word from which you and I may find great encouragement as his people today. Matthew 6 verse 25, Jesus says, Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about the collapse ceiling in the church. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. John 14 verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. I go to prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you to be with me. John 14 25. I will send you the counselor, the Holy Spirit, who will teach you all things. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. 
Matthew 18. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, says Jesus. Surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So let's be confirmed today in God's promises. Secondly, let's be confirmed in God's providence. God is in control. This is a most comforting theme which runs through the whole book of Habakkuk. God is sovereign over all things, past, present, and future. And he's actively working out all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. He is using the circumstances of your life, the events of world powers, the forces of nature, everything going on is using to achieve his plan of salvation for the church. Apart from God, there is no comfort. There is no rest. And so we thank God today that we can find rest and hope in him alone and in his providential care for each one of us. And then finally, be confirmed in God's purposes. God is a God of purpose. We see this throughout the history of the world. We see this recounted for us in this entire hymn of praise. God is a God of purpose. God has been and always will continue to achieve His purposes. And as the children of God, we are called to live in accordance with His purposes for which He has for us and for which He has as a, for us as a church. As with Habakkuk, we need to see, firstly, God's purposes in our salvation. And then we need to see God's purposes in His church. We looked recently in our study on the Holy Spirit at 1 Corinthians 12 that, that each one of us has been specifically gifted by the Holy Spirit to function and, and play an active role as a member of the body of Christ. And so if you are not fulfilling your purpose in the body of Christ, then you are not fulfilling the purpose for which Jesus died to save you. It's only when we see that, that our purpose in life is grounded in, in our eternal security in Jesus Christ that, that we can then face the trials and the challenges in this life and rejoice as Habakkuk did in the God of our salvation. We too can be strengthened with the agility of a deer to climb the high hills of the knowledge of God and be strengthened in the glorious privilege of serving Him in His church. So are you confirmed in the purposes which God has for your life? Are you actively living out God's purposes for you in the church here at Honeyridge? in your home, in your school, and in your workplace? Or are you drifting along as a spectator as God achieves His purposes through others? Well, that's where we end our brief overview in the book of Habakkuk this morning. But I mentioned in my first message that the book, book of Habakkuk was one of the most relevant and contemporary books in the Bible. Relevant because Habakkuk started off asking God so many questions that, that we also have today. 
And so as I close this morning, let me just conclude with, with those questions that we started with three weeks ago and to see whether or not we found the answers. What is the meaning of history? The answer is God's glory through the salvation of his church. Why does God not do something about the evil in the world? Oh, he does, and he will continue to do so, though it lingers. Wait for it, because it will surely come. Why does God even allow evil to flourish? Well, he does so in order that his purposes might be fulfilled, and that he will be most glorified through the salvation of his people. Even though evil may flourish for a season, ultimately, the righteous will be saved by faith. And how can a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? God is busy building His church. And that involves both purification and chastisement, discipline. But through those things, God remains our joy and our strength. And we can rejoice in the God of our salvation. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for these brief three weeks that we've spent in, in the book of Habakkuk. And there is so much more that we could have explored. Uh, but we want to thank you for giving us this incredible insight into the heart of a man who was wrestling with, with who you are and your dealings with him and with his people. And we want to thank you, Lord, that you've given us this portion of your word to allow us with all our doubts and questions to, to enter into this journey on which you took Habakkuk. And I pray, Lord God, that for each one of us today, we would have reached that place where we can stand with Habakkuk on the watchtower, looking to you for the answers, knowing that you are the God of all glory. You are the God of all justice and righteousness and holiness. But at the same time, you are a God of grace and mercy and eternal salvation. And so we want to thank you that here in this Old Testament prophetic book, you have revealed to us afresh the Lord Jesus Christ, your anointed one. That if we trust in him, if we repent of our sins and trust in him, we are saved. We become part of your precious bride, your people, that you will preserve and persevere us to the very end because your promises never fail. And so we cry out to you as Habakkuk did, Lord, in our day, won't you revive us? Won't you renew your work in our day, we plead? Won't you do a great work amongst us as your people here at Honeyridge? Won't you do a great work amongst the broader body of Christ in our city of Johannesburg? That this city, which is the hub of our country, may be so transformed by the power of the gospel at work in our lives that its influence would spread across the entire country. Oh Lord God, what we are asking for is so much greater than our little congregation here in the West Rand. But Lord, what we are asking 
expectantly is for you to act, for you to do what you have promised in your word that you will continue to do until Jesus Christ returns, which is to build your church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Oh Lord, won't you be pleased to draw us as your people to yourself, purify us, reveal the sin in our hearts that needs to be confessed and repented, that we as your people might be an army bold whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. We thank you that you are at work in us. We thank you for your sovereign protection over us as your people, even in this past week. And we look to you today afresh to be the God of our salvation. And we pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen.